Delighted that you're here, and I hope you have your Bible with you and have taken time perhaps this afternoon to read through 1 Timothy chapter 4 in preparation for our study tonight. As we mentioned this morning, we'll continue our study through 1 Timothy. We're looking at 1 Timothy in view of an emphasis on teaching, whether you ever preach, even filling in, or teach in Bible class, as many of you do, or teach in any shape, form, or fashion, which all of us should do at some shape, some point in our life, we should benefit from the teaching of 1 Timothy. Here is an outline of 1 Timothy. We are ready for chapter 4. This is as DeWelt uh, outlines this, and chapter 4 deals with false teachers. Now, there's much more to chapter 4 than that, but that is part of the emphasis of chapter 4. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I want us to begin with an overview of the chapter. This is going to be a quick run, as we have done in other accounts, I mean other chapters. We're going to do a quick run through the chapter. And uh, then we're going to come back and list a number of things that we learn, and we'll give more emphasis to some of the details of the chapter when we come back and begin to list the things that we learn. Here's what 1 Timothy 4 is about, personal instructions to Timothy, and he's going to talk about how apostasy will come, first of all, and secondly, here's instructions concerning Timothy's teaching and his conduct. It gets into his personal conduct in the second section, but first is the section about apostasy will come in verses 1 to 5. William Hendrickson correctly said apostasy is around the corner based upon the text here in 1 Timothy 4. And I like what he said. He said, though the church be ever so glorious, reflecting the radiance of its precious Lord and Savior, 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, apostasy is just around the corner. For not all who belong outwardly to the church belong to it inwardly. The present chapter deals with this apostasy. And so it does. So let's begin in chapter 4 in verse 1. Here's what we're going to learn about the apostasy. He starts in verse 1 saying that some will depart from the faith. Now he had just described in chapter 3 verse 16 basically the summary of the scheme of redemption and calls it the mystery of godliness. This is God's plan for saving man. In contrast to that, some are going to depart. Now the Spirit expressly says, that is he emphatically says and clearly says and so I'll learn a couple of things. One is that he is claiming to write by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's claiming to be inspired. But what he's saying is the Holy Spirit is saying without any vagueness at all, the Holy Spirit is clearly defining something we need to understand. That in latter times, some will depart from the faith. He's talking about the last days. Uh, the last dispensation from Acts 2, 17 on, it's referred to as the last days. Peter said this is that, speaking of the last days. That some will depart from the faith, and so that's all I want us to see at verse 1 at this juncture. We'll come back and get the rest of verse 1, but he says that the Spirit has revealed there will be apostasy, that the time is coming when there will be departures from the faith. Now, Timothy is at Ephesus, by the way, and Paul had warned the church at Ephesus, the elders at Ephesus, that there would be departures, he said, and uh, even among themselves there would be a departure from the faith, and so there apparently was a danger of apostasy, particularly there at Ephesus. But now let's go on in verse 1. That they will give, here's where the departure is going to come, when some are giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. False teachers have been called spirits in a number of other places, like 1 Timothy chapter 4. Try the spirits whether they are of God. He's talking about teachers. Uh, uh, the idea of a movement or a, a concept and an idea. And so 
These are the spirits, but the doctrines of demons tells us the where of the source of the doctrine. So they're going to give heed to false teaching, and consequently some will be led astray. Now notice in verse 2, these false teachers are going to speak lies and hypocrisy. What they teach is not true, but they're doing it in hypocrisy, meaning they know it's not the truth. Some false teachers do not know that what they're teaching is not true. They believe it in all, in all sincerity. There are others that don't that even know it's not true, but they, they go, go in that direction anyway. They're speaking lies and hypocrisy. How could they do that? Well, the third point is they have their conscience seared as with a hot iron, like branding of a slave, or perhaps more in our time, the branding of cattle. And so they have their conscience seared as if a hot iron has touched. So there's no feeling anymore. They resisted their conscience, resisted their conscience, and resist their conscience until their conscience doesn't bother them anymore. And that's where these false teachers are. Now, there are two areas that he mentions. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats in verse 3. Here are the two areas, and this has to do with some form of asceticism. Which what, what is asceticism? It is the idea of a denial of body, bodily comfort in order that you may be superior spiritually. So if I deny myself of food, if I deny myself of eating of meat, if I deny myself even of marriage, that that brings greater spirituality about me, which is not at all in harmony with what the Lord had said. And we're going to see more about that in a moment. But they forbid to marry and they command to abstain from meat. That, by the way, was one of the essential elements that became a part of second century Gnosticism, and we see a little bit of that in Ephesians. But we'll come back, or Colossians, rather, and we'll come back to that principle a little bit later. Now, at verse 3, he said that this ought to be received with thanksgiving for those that believe and know the truth. Those that believe the truth and know the truth, those are two different things. You know the truth and not believe it. But they believe the truth and they know the truth. They understand the principle that one can marry and that we're not to necessarily, we're not commanded to abstain from meats. That that ought to be received with thanksgiving. Now, he says apostasy will come. We'll say more about that in a moment. Now, let's run through quickly verses 6 to 15, the instructions concerning Timothy's teaching and conduct. Notice beginning at verse 6. He said, if you instruct the brethren in these things, well, the things he's talking about, not just verses 1 to 5, but concerning the mystery of godliness of chapter 3 and all that he mentioned in chapter 2 and in chapter 1 as well, but particularly this danger of apostasy. If you warn the brethren of these things, he said, in other words, instruct the brethren, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine. So he said, if you want to be a good minister, a good servant of the Lord, then you're going to instruct the brethren concerning these things. Notice verse 7. He tells him to refuse profane and old wives' fables. Refuse those. We'll define those in a moment. But in contrast, exercise yourself rather unto godliness. Now this carries us through verse 10. Why do we need to exercise unto godliness? Well, he said godliness is profitable for all things. Bodily exercise profits little. He's not minimizing that, but he's saying it only has benefit here and now. But godliness can not only benefit you now, but it also benefits you with the life that now is, that is salvation now, and of that which is to come, eternal life. And this is a faithful saying, he says, for to this end we both labor and suffer, that is, we're willing to suffer and we're willing to labor in order to be godly because what? Look at verse 10, we trust in the living God. We don't trust in man. We don't trust in uh, riches. We're not trusting in the false teachers, but we're trusting in the living God that he is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Now notice in verse 11, here's the next thing he mentions. He says, command and teach. 
What you need to do, Timothy, this is part of your work, is you're to command and teach. The idea of a command here suggests something of the authority that is behind the message. Not that Timothy has the right to command anybody anything. He is not an apostle. He is not inspired. But he has a revelation from God that has been given to him through the apostles, and these things you can command. How can he command those? Because it is the revelation from God. So these things command, he said. In other words, emphasize the authority behind the message. Not what you think and how you feel, but the command behind the message. And these things command, he said, and teach. What's the idea of teaching? It means instruction. In other words, he explained what he commanded. You tell them what the Lord told them, and then you explain that to them. And show them how that fits their life. That's Bible preaching and Bible teaching. Now, beginning at verse 12, he talks about being an example of the believer. Let no one despise your youth. We'll talk about that in a moment. But be thou an example of the believer. And then he lists the areas in which that is to be done. Now at verse 13, he said, give attendance to reading and exhortation and doctrine. Till I come, spend some time reading, spend some time exhorting, and spend some time teaching. Now verse 14, don't neglect the gift that is in you by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. That's the same word for elders. At some point, an eldership had appointed him to a task. Don't neglect that gift that is within you, he said. Now he mentions another thing. Verse 15, meditate on these things. And give yourself completely or entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. And then finally he mentions, not only meditate, but give yourself wholly to them, but take heed to two things, to yourself and to your doctrine. Watch what you teach and then watch how you practice what you teach. For in doing that you'll save yourself and those that hear you. So he warns about apostasy and then he talks to Timothy about how he's to conduct himself. Now, there's some things that we learn about teaching from this. That's our emphasis in 1 Timothy. So let's begin to list these. In our teaching, whether we're teaching our children in our home, whether we're teaching a Bible class, we're preaching, teaching our neighbor across the fence or across the dinner table, we need to warn about apostasy, verses 1 to 5. First of all, we need to notice that apostasy will come and apostasy will happen. Time and time again, individuals will turn aside from the faith. That has happened all through time. It happened in New Testament times. It's happened in every century. We've seen it in our lifetime, and it's going to happen again. And so that means that we have seen people that just continue to depart from the faith. In the future, if it continues, there's going to be more people depart from the faith. Not everybody's going to stick to it. There are going to be movements and departures, even among brethren. We've talked about that in studies of history, that there have been movements away from, from faith. There are churches that will drift. So here was a church maybe that stood strong. Maybe it's the El Bethel Church that in the future may be as, as loose and as corrupt as it can be because it drifts. That could happen to any church. And so we need to warn about apostasy. It can happen. Here's something else about apostasy we need to teach, and that is that some will listen to deception and lies and demons before they listen to the truth. The text tells us that. Those that he talks about in this text were Christians had been Christians. They lost their faith. They lost their belief in the truth. This verse 3, 1 Timothy 4 and in verse 3. Now, they are accepting this teaching of forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meat, which those who believe and know the truth understand. They don't understand that anymore. They no longer believe and know the truth. So they no longer believe the truth. They no longer know the truth, the text says. That's going to happen. Some are going to listen to lies and deception rather than listen to the truth. Here's something else. Some false teachers know better. Just because someone is teaching something, that doesn't mean they always really buy into that. They may have another motive in mind. 
These in this context obviously did. Verse 1 says that they're going to deceive. Verse 2 says they're speaking lies and hypocrisy. Verse 2 says they reach the point their conscience is seared. There's a warning in that for any one of us. Not just in teaching, but if you're resisting your conscience and you keep pushing against it and pushing against it, you can finally reach the point. It doesn't bother you anymore. And you can plow right on into whatever you want to do. Here's something else I learned about apostasy. Ultra-conservative and forbidding liberties is still wrong. Somewhere we get the concept that the conservative mindset, if, if we're conservative, the more conservative that I am, the better I am. And some even pride themselves, if they find somebody who's to their left, I'm more conservative than you, they may brag. That means I must be better than you, and I'm more dedicated than you. Well, if you're more conservative than God, you're too conservative. Because they were forbidding to marry something God had permitted. They were commanding to abstain from meat, something that God had allowed. And so here is the liberty to marry and that matting or eating a meat. And while they're not commanded, neither were they forbidden at all. So I'm learning that binding an opinion that you think is quite ultra-conservative is absolutely wrong. Here's the second thing we need to teach you about. We need to warn about apostasy. We need to reject fables in our teaching. <coughs> Look at verse 7. We need to reject fables. Let's define fables. What is a fable? A fable is something that is false, something that is fictitious, something that is untrue. The apostle says to reject profane and old wives' fables. The idea of profane is something common and useless, produces no good. It's empty. The old wives may suggest something of the source. The origin is from old foolish women. In other words, it has no substantial basis for it. I'm not so much concerned about who they were or their age, as I know that these fables didn't come from God, so consequently they came from some source that is unsubstantiated. So don't spend any time with fables, profane, or old wives' fables, he said. But let's go to verse 7. He says, reject, your translation may say, refuse that. Now that word that's translated abstain or refuse simply means to abstain, to be bothered with, Linsky observed. In other words, don't give it the time of day. Show it's not worthy of your time. Don't waste your time giving it any attention because it only gives credence to that. And so here's something I learned for all Bible class teachers and all preachers of the gospel, and I try to talk this to young preachers as we're in preacher training programs from time to time. Don't waste time on useless material. What does that mean? Well, that just simply means time is precious in the class and in the pulpit. And if we spend five to ten minutes on something that it matters not, uh, nothing matters about, it's just useless material that when you get through it has accomplished nothing, we've wasted our time. Don't waste time on useless material. In fact, let's notice a contrast back to verse 6. There seems to be a contrast with these foolish or, or profane and old wives' fables and the nourishment in the Word. Timothy needed to be nourished in the Word. Notice back in verse 6. He said, if you instruct the brethren in these things... You're a good minister, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine. If you're teaching them what they need to be taught, you're a good minister who is nourished in the word of faith and in doctrine. In contrast now, don't waste your time on old wives and foolish uh, fables. Now let's go further. Let's talk about exercising to godliness, verses 7 through 10, 7b through 10. Let's talk about godliness. That doesn't mean to be God-like, as the common definition is often given. It's never defined as such. It just simply means 
reverence or piety toward God. That's godly or godliness. It comes from a compound word, eusebia, and sebia or sebia simply means the idea of being devout, but you means well. So it means to be well devoted. Not just devoted, but to be well devoted. That's the idea of godliness. Here's someone who has some dedication, but they're not well devoted. That's not godliness. Godliness means to be well devoted. A godly attitude that seems to be, tries to be well-pleasing to God. It's in contrast to the fables. And so this is worth our time, and this is worth our attention. In other words, you, you spend time going toward godliness versus giving attention to the old wise fables now. So the point is, live a devout life. Live a devoted life, Timothy. And that's going to make your teaching very effective. Now let's talk about this word exercise. It's used here in our text. It talks about bodily exercise. It profits little... But we are to exercise ourselves rather under godliness. Now the word exercise comes from the word gymnasia. Sound familiar? It just simply means training. It's the word from which we get our word gymnasium or gym of going to the gym. That's the idea of that. It's a training that's involved. In other words, verse 10 says, for this we, are you reading with me? Verse 10, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. We're willing to suffer, but we're willing to work hard at godliness, trying to be godly in every shape, form, or fashion. Now, what's interesting about this word, exercise, that in both Greek and Roman classics, they speak of training naked in the gymnastics. And so you do a study of this word gymnasium, or from that Greek word from which we get our word gymnasium, it talked about how they trained in the nude. And so you say, what, what's, what's the point about that? It's not that we are to be in that form, but it's the idea, why did they train in the nude? It's the idea of removing all the obstacles that stand in the way. They want to exercise to their fullest, so they took off all of their clothes so that they could exercise because they don't want any impediment to that. And there's something to be learned from that. Not that we literally take off our clothes, but take off anything that's in the way of exercising yourself unto God. So here is, is some, some attitude you have, or maybe here is some practice, or some obstacle, or something that we're doing that's standing in the way and impeding our development of godliness, then shed that off and throw it away. So you can fully exercise, that's the point. Now, he said this is profitable for all things. In other words, it helps in all areas of life. Bodily exercise doesn't do that. Yeah, bodily exercise does you some good. No, no, nobody discredits that. Paul acknowledges that. But this helps in all areas of life. Like what? Well, he says of the life that now is, that salvation now, fellowship with God. If you're godly, that helps in that relationship. It promotes that relationship. And of that which is to come, he says, that is eternal life. It is profitable. Now, verse 10. We're still talking about exercising to God. Be willing to suffer for godliness. Be willing to suffer. For this end, we labor and suffer. And so we, we need to be willing to suffer in order to be godly, to be what we ought to be. Now, what I'm learning from this, that those who are teachers and preachers are not devoted are not worth much. Those who are not devoted are not much worth much in the kingdom. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, there are preachers and teachers, Bible class teachers, uh, preachers of the gospel, that, for example, they don't spend much time studying. I've known of preachers who um, grab an outline out of an outline book and they run to the pulpit and had even read it, hadn't studied it, and they're ready to go preach, and consequently they're not spending much. They're not devoted to their work. They're not worth much in the kingdom is the idea. When we have a half-hearted approach to our, our work as a Bible class teacher, 
We're not worth much in the kingdom is the idea. We won't be concerned about what we're teaching if we're not fully devoted. We're not concerned about the, the hearer. We won't strive to help them at all. And so we're going to be worth very little in the production of, of what is good in the kingdom. Go to verse 12. Let's talk about being an example. Here's a phrase that sometimes has been greatly misunderstood, and that is, let no one despise your youth, the text says. Let no one despise your youth, but be thou an example of the believer. So here's what he's saying. Don't let anyone, don't give anyone a reason to look down upon you. Some have taken this, that Timothy is not to look down on his youth, but use his youth to the kingdom and to the glory. Well, that may be true, but I don't think that's the emphasis here, and argues that. I think his emphasis is in being an example. Notice at verse, uh, verse 12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example. What does he mean by that? Well, you could conduct yourself in a way, Timothy was young, so that they look down upon him as being immature and not well-developed, and he hasn't grown like he should have. And he's, he's, his actions and his teaching and his, his manner of life is all showing immaturity. So don't give anyone a reason to look down upon you because of your youth, thinking, well, he's immature and he, he's not, he can't handle the work. He can't do the job. But show yourself an exception to that. So what do you do? He said, well, be an example. Be a pattern for others to follow. That's what this word example means. Be a pattern that someone could look to and say, here's a picture of what we're trying to teach you. So I'm trying to teach you, but here's the pattern that you're to follow. Here's the example you follow. But now he talks about the areas. I said we'd be more specific here. He said, be an example in word, Timothy. In other words, exemplify to others what you should say. Be an example in your conduct, verse 12, how you live. Be an example in love, sincere interest in others. Be an example in spirit, that is your attitude. Sure, your attitude is right. Be an example in faith, have strong, unwavering faith. Be an example in purity, live clean and unspotted in your life. I like what Barnes said at this juncture. He said, there should be nothing in your conduct with the other sex that would give rise to scandal. Perhaps the warning is appropriate because there's been so many that have destroyed their influence through their illicit contact with the opposite sex. Now, what I'm learning from that by being an example, every word and every thought and every action be carefully guarded. How does that affect my, my impact as a teacher? Let's go to verse 13. Till I come, give attendance to reading. If, if we're going to teach others, be our children, and we're going to lead them properly, we're going to teach our neighbor, we're going to teach our brethren, we're going to teach the world, we're going to teach Bible class, we're going to preach whatever it is. We need to spend some time reading. Till I come, give attendance to reading. There needs to be the private reading and study. We need to read, we need to study, we need to read, we need to study, we need to read, and we need to study. You can't teach what you don't know. It may include public reading of the Scripture. In fact, you may have a text, your translation may say, uh, till I come give attendance to public reading, to exhortation and the doctrine. The word for public is not found in either the minority or the majority text. There's not a word. Perhaps it's implied. That's why it's inserted in some of the texts. Some have thought it's implied. BDAG, that's Bauer, Danker, and Art and Ginkrich say, that reading here is probably, uh, probably public, they say. It's probably so. A.T. Robertson says it's public, but private is not excluded. 
So what reading of the Scripture? Well, read it privately. Read it publicly. There needs to be the reading of the Scripture. You continue to read. We'll say more about what you do with that reading, but let's raise the question, what was to be read? Well, the Scriptures is what it was to be read. For Timothy, that would be the Old Testament and any part of the New Testament canon that had been completed. But for us, it would be both the Old and New Testament. We need to read the Old Testament and we need to read the New Testament and we need to read the Old Testament and the New Testament and read and read. You can't teach what you don't know. Good teachers are good readers. In other words, you can't again teach what you don't know. What we need to do is spend some time with the Word. We need to read and reread and become familiar with the text so that we know the flow of the text. We know what this chapter is about, what this book is about that we're trying to teach. We need to know other material. How so? Well, Paul talked to Timothy, and he said in 2 Timothy 4, to come, when you come, bring with you the books, he said. And then he quoted from one of the poets to, Timothy, or to Titus in Titus chapter 1 and in verse 12. So what would that suggest? Well, we may need another source sometime to define a word. We might need a source that does that. We may need some historical background to a text. We might need to read and study about that. It might be that we need some evidence uh, of an interpretation, that this interpretation is true or is not true, that there is some evidence of that, that there is some kind of evidence that it suggests that that is the case of whatever it may be. Now let's go to verse 13 again. Let's talk about exhorting and teaching. Till I come give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Let's talk about this word exhort. The word exhort means to encourage others. In other words, it's an appeal to make them or encourage them to do what they know they need to be doing. You've already taught them, verse uh, 11 suggests, these things command and teach. But now give attention to reading and to exhortation. You, you exhort them to do what they've already been taught. But it also involves comfort, consolation. It's the same word for comforter, paraclete. It's the idea of a comforter. So be a comforter and give some comfort in the teaching. Titus was to do that, Timothy was to do that, and Paul had done that. But then he mentions doctrine. That's not so much the body of teaching as it is the teaching, the act of teaching itself, as exemplified in the American Standard and, and New King James uh, footnote. In other words, teach what you read. This is what expository teaching does. You read and then you teach what you read. Till I come give attendance unto reading and to exhortation and to doctrine. What do you teach? You teach what you have been reading. That's the work of preaching and teaching the gospel. Now let's go to verse 14. In verse 14 he says, don't neglect the gift that is in you through the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. What was the gift? Well, it was an inspiration. There is no evidence that Timothy was inspired. It wasn't spiritual gifts. Some suggest it was spiritual gifts, but that was, he doesn't mention that it was late, that this gift was imparted by the laying on of the hands of the apostles. Now, why do I mention that? Well, Acts 8 demonstrates for us that when there was a need for imparting spiritual gifts, they had to call for the apostles to come and do that. That couldn't be imparted by someone else. There's no evidence that that power could be transferred to anyone. This was given by the laying on the hands of the presbytery. It's the same word that is translated elders in other places. That's what it has to do with the eldership. And so the, some elders somewhere, perhaps at Ephesus, had laid hands on, the, on Timothy to impart some gift to him. It may simply be, be the ministry, uh, the work which was given by the grace of God, that here is the work that he has to do that he's been appointed to do, in other words. 
And so I learned from that. We ought to view our task, whether you've been assigned to teach a class or you're assigned by the Lord to teach your children or maybe you're assigned to preach one Sunday or whatever, that this is a task or a job that's been given and it's a gift that's been given unto me. Now, let's talk about the laying on of hands here. The term laying on of hands is used in different ways throughout the New Testament. Sometimes there was the laying on of hands like the apostles and they imparted spiritual gifts. Acts 8 would be an example of that. Sometimes there was the laying on the hands from the standpoint of healing. We see that in various places in the New Testament. But sometimes it is used, like in Acts 13, it is used not to impart some miraculous gift, but to appoint to some task. Let's go to Acts chapter 13, if you will, in verse 3. This is in the first missionary journey. And in that first missionary <coughs> journey, <coughs> excuse me, the text says <coughs> that when they, they assembled the ones that were going forth on the missionary journey, Verse 2, then they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them and sent them away. What does that mean? Well, they had basically appointed them to the task, and it was a formality of sending them on their way and putting them to the task. And so what's this passage talking about? Seemingly, the, an eldership has appointed him to the task. We want you, Timothy, to work with us, and we want you to do the work of preaching, and we want you to teach this congregation, and they appointed him to the task. Well, a number of elderships have done that. Uh, when we invite a man to come and preach for us for a week, as we did a couple of weeks ago, we basically laid hands. We literally didn't put our hands on, but we asked Brother Casimir to come, and would you preach for us for a week? We laid our hands. We appointed him to a task. And so he did his task, and he's fulfilling the task. That's all this is talking about. Timothy, don't neglect the gift that, hey, have been forgiven, that you have been given. So it suggests some idea of an approval of the work that is to be done. So his point is don't neglect that. In other words, you've been appointed to the task. Do the work you've been charged to do. The elders have asked you to do the work there at Ephesus. Do the work they've asked you to do. What charge you have been given, don't neglect that. Don't become careless about it, Strong suggests, is what that means. He could easily gradually let up a little here, let up a little there, until finally he's no longer doing the work he should be doing. Let's go to verse 15. He needs to spend some time meditating. Now this is something interesting. He said, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. The word meditate seems to be in contrast and the opposite of neglect. In other words, the New American Standard translates that take pains with these things and be absorbed in them. Don't neglect the gift, but take pains and be absorbed in them. Be diligent in these matters, A.T. Robertson so translates it. Be diligent. In other words, let these things be in your constant care and in your constant attention. The responsibility that you have, the task that is put before you. In other words, he needs to think carefully and reflect on a number of things. Back to verses uh, 13 and 14. Stop and think about your duty and responsibility, Timothy, as you're working there with the church at Ephesus. But not only think about that, think about what you read. Spend some time reading the scriptures and then think about that and reflect about what you've been reading. When you reflect on the reading, you might do some reflecting on application. What kind of application could be made of that? I might do spend some time thinking about parallels so that I could better teach that. What, what is a parallel to this principle here that we're talking about? How can I make this point clear that I'm trying to teach? How can I demonstrate this? How can I illustrate this? I might be reflecting and, and meditating on some problems with a position that someone holds. And how does this, that position fit with this text? Or is it in disarray? How do I illustrate this text? How do I, how do I get the point across somehow? Well, after doing some time meditating, which is what every teacher should do, give yourself completely to that, verse 15b. 
Give yourself completely to that. That's dedication. That's devotion. In other words, completely submerse yourself in the work that you're doing. In other words, teaching is not a job that you clock in and then you clock out somehow. You don't do that. Those who teach public school well understand that in public teaching. The same thing is true in teaching Bible class. The same thing is true in preaching the gospel. It's not something where you clock in and then you clock out. In other words, do, do what it takes to be ready to do your teaching, Timothy. Spend some time reading. Do some time, spend some time meditating, reflecting on that. And give yourself completely to that. It takes time to prepare. It takes time to do the work. And so your goal is get the work done, whatever it takes, Timothy. Because you have a responsibility that is before you. Now let's go to verse 16 now. At verse 16, he says, make application to yourself, Timothy. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine and continue in them, for in doing this you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. In other words, apply your teaching to your own life, Timothy. It's very easy for preachers and teachers to think first about others. I know that firsthand. That you see a principle and you think, I know somebody that needs this principle. You hear a lesson, you think, I, I want to take that and work that into a study myself because I know some folks that could benefit from that study. It's easy to think about everybody else first. But what Paul is telling Timothy is you study with your own life in view and you practice what you preach. So if you teach about honesty, be honest. If you teach about purity, be pure. If you teach about godliness, then seek to be godly. Now here's the result of that. In so doing, he said, you'll save yourself. If you don't save anybody else, that's what God told Ezekiel. Remember God told Ezekiel, you're going to go and they're going to turn a deaf ear. And kind of then the question would be, then what's the use? You saved yourself, he said. You might not save anybody else, but at least you saved yourself. But another result is you have a greater influence on those who are your hearers. You have a greater influence on those who are your hearers if they see that what you're doing is exactly what you're teaching and what you're teaching is what you practice. If they see this array in that, they're going to disregard what you're teaching. Any parent understands. If you tell your child to do something and you're doing the opposite, they're going to discount everything you said. And the same thing is true in our preaching and in our teaching. So what have we seen? Well, here's some instructions to Timothy about his teaching and his conduct. Warn about apostasy, Timothy. Reject fables, exercise to godliness, be an example, spend time reading, spend time reading, spend time reading, exhort and teach, spend some time doing that. Don't neglect the gift, meditate, give yourself completely to that, make application to yourself, Timothy, and then he says, you indeed will be a good minister, he says. You'll be a good minister of the gospel. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God, would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come all together?